Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Well, we are continuing our series on Hebrews. Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You can find this on page 1001 in the Blue Pew Bibles and page 1187 in the Red Pew Bibles, which are the ones that are a little bit larger print. (coughs) These Bibles at the back uh, next to the tech booth if you don't have one of your own. As you're turning there, I just want to remind you that in case you don't have them yet, we have notebooks in the back that are available for you. These are our gift to you. This is an opportunity for you to take notes over the sermon, to keep track of all the Hebrew sermon or prayer requests or however you want to use this. We want to give this to you as an opportunity for you to be encouraged and to be blessed. We also have cards in the back that can be used for invitation. They have all the information of the church on it when we meet, where we're at. We've got a QR code on the back that can send you to our website. Take the opportunity to hand those out where you live, work, study, and play. As you have conversations, invite people to our church. And finally, I want to encourage you to continue to pray for Camp K. Last week was the break week, the 4th of July week, and so they pick back up this week, and this week they have more campers coming out to camp. So just be praying for all the staff, all the campers, pray that uh, God will be glorified, that they will be encouraged as campers, and that your message, or, or that the gospel of grace will be made known. Once you've turned to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay it much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Father, we thank you for this text. We pray that uh, you would open our minds to comprehend and understand what you're doing in this text. You open our hearts to hide the truths of the gospel that are in this text there, that we might take comfort from them when we struggle. You would open our hands to apply this text to our life. Father, help me to be a uh, a microphone, just magnifying your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. David McWilliams was a student of Sinclair Ferguson, and in his commentary on Hebrews, he tells this story. Sinclair Ferguson held his first pastorate on the Isle of Unst, that's U-N-S-T, the northernmost inhabited isle in Britain. I have heard him tell of bird watchers that would sometimes come from the mainland to observe the unusual bird and wildlife on that rocky island. 
Dr. Ferguson said something like this, suppose one of those bird watchers came and looking up paid no heed to the sheer drop that was before his feet. Would you not feel compelled, compelled to cry out, beware, beware? So it is with the gospel minister. All around us are sinners who are oblivious of the sheer drop into an eternal hell that awaits them for their unbelief. Are we not obligated to cry out, beware, do we not owe it to them? Ferguson brings up a serious point here, and while he is speaking because this story is relayed through David McWilliams, who had him in seminary, to pastors, it's a note to all of us. Not just to beware of the sheer cliff of unbelief, but to help others understand what that is as well. We have already seen and will continue to see that the writer of Hebrews is very concerned and committed to the care of the saints. He wants them to not only know and understand who Jesus is, to know and understand that Jesus is better, but he wants them to persevere in their faith. Hebrews is filled with encouragement as well as warnings to persevere. Not just to believers, but to unbelievers as well. Today's passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is the first of five warning passages that we will look at throughout Hebrews. You have one in chapter 2, there's uh, one in chapter 3, starting in verse 7 and going to chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 5, 11 through 6, 12. Chapter 10, 19 through uh, 10, 39. And chapter 12, 1 through 12, 29. Those are the five major warnings that are given by the author, but he starts with this one in chapter 2. As we dive into the text, it's important for us to remember, context is king, that's right. We don't know exactly who the author is, but we know that they know their theology and their faith well, and that they trust Christ. And while we don't know the exact city or location to which this letter was written, we know that the audience is Jewish Christians. And we also know, as we read through, that they're Jewish Christians who are exhausted. Jewish Christians who are being persecuted. And Jewish Christians who might be tempted to give up. And because of that, not only does the author give these glorious exhortations of how Jesus is better, but he gives warnings for believers not to give up. So let's take a look at these warnings, starting in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts with the word, therefore. Now, I have a pastor at the first PCA church I ever went to, and he loved to say, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to look back and find out what it is there for. Because therefore is one of these words that connects everything that's about to be said with what came before it. So before we even begin with the warning, the author is pointing us back to what he has just said. What is this text based on what is the indicative, the truth that is there that the, the imperative or the command is going to be based on. Well, verses 1 through 4 are based on all of chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we saw Christ is more glorious than the prophets. 
In verses 1 through 4, we saw how he is more glorious than the prophets. But not only that, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, we also saw that Christ is glorious as the Son of God. We saw that the author calls him the appointed heir, the creator, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of the nature of God, and the cosmic sustainer. Christ is glorious as the Son. And then starting in verse 5 and going through the end of chapter 1, he showed that Christ is more glorious than the angels. So in chapter 2, as he begins to warn his audience of whatever he's going to warn them of, he first reminds them of chapter 1. Christ is better. Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is glorious as the Son of God and all that that entails. And so the author begins chapter 2, this warning section, with a reminder of the glory of Christ. And that's what we have to base everything we're going to read today on, the glory of Christ that we've already seen. Based on that glory, the author is now going to give us a warning to how, on how to live as faithful Christians. John Owen, in his commentary on Hebrews, says that the writer of Hebrews argues, Seeing the gospel hath such a blessed author, we ought to take care that we forfeit not our interest in it. Now, John Owen is a Puritan. He's wrote a long time ago, not recently. And so basically he's saying, seeing that the gospel is so important, the gospel is by Jesus, we shouldn't lose our interest in the gospel. Because of how glorious Jesus is, the gospel has to be that much better. And he's going to expand on that in these verses. But as we see that, we also have to ask ourselves, are we in danger of forgetting the uniqueness and glory of the gospel? In Galatians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, 6 through 9, Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I will say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is shocked that the Galatian church has so quickly turned from the gospel of grace that he showed them and taught them and that they came to faith under. The Galatian church forgot the glories of Christ. And the author of Hebrews wants to make sure that that is not the case for his audience. Pay close attention to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have 
heard. What does he mean by must pay much closer attention to what we have heard? He means that we have to apply ourselves to knowing, understanding, and putting to use the gospel in our lives. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough that because of the gospel we came to faith and we're good. We can live however we want because we're going to heaven. That is true. But that gospel doesn't just assure us of eternity. It draws us into God's presence, securing us in our place before him, and motivates us and draws us into glorifying the Lord in the time that we have here. The truth of the gospel demands that not only do we know it, but that we put it into play in our lives. That's what the author is saying. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Is the gospel being put to use in our lives? Verse 1 also has this sense between the phrase pay attention and the phrase drift lest we drift away from it. It gives this nautical tone to the message. We have to hold the ship on course. Otherwise, we drift off course. One of my favorite illustrations, which I give often, is of the skill of orienteering. I like to give it because I feel like it's a skill that's losing its place with all the abundance of GPSs, but... Before we had cell phones, for those of you who don't know this, we had this thing called a compass, which would point to the north. Your cell phone does that now, and you don't have to worry about magnets or anything like that. But when I was growing up, long, long time ago, the compass would tell us which way north was. And so as we looked at a map to try and find our way, that's called orienteering, we would say, okay, on the map, I need to head 10 degrees east. So we'd look at our compass, and we'd find where that 10 degrees was. Well, I grew up in Tennessee, and Tennessee is known for its rolling hills. And so if I find that bearing, but wherever I'm headed is on this hill, and I just start walking in that direction, I'm like, okay, I got to go that way, and I just start walking, what's going to happen is that naturally that hill is going to turn me to the left if it's going down. Because as I step, I'm going to be moving in that direction. And so in order to account for this, in order to make sure that we don't get lost, we learned in orienteering that once we had that direction, we were to find some kind of marker that we would walk to, a unique tree or a big rock or something, so that if we started to drift, we could say, oh, no, I've got to reorient myself towards that tree or that rock. One time when I was orienteering uh, at near uh, where I grew up, my friend and I were just walking along, and you tend to not always pay attention because you want to make sure you're going the right way, and we stopped because we heard something. I was like, what was that? And we looked, and six feet in front of us was a rattlesnake. So it was like, oh, okay, we're going to back up slowly. But because we had something to look at, we could make our way all the way around the snake without disturbing it, find that mark, and keep going. And orienteering helps us to think through how we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. The gospel is that mark that we're walking through. Our life will be filled with hills and rattlesnakes and things in our way, suffering that's going to hurt and try and disorient us, and Satan who's going to try and throw us off track. But if we fix our eyes on our direction, on the gospel, on Jesus then we can continue to reorient ourselves to who he is. Just like 
We're supposed to pay attention left, lest we drift. In the ocean, it's really hard because there's not a lot of landmarks. And so they have to use stars and things like that. And they have to pay close attention to the direction that they go. The author of Hebrews is calling us in verse 1 not to drift away from the gospel. Not to lose sight of our bearings. Not to have apathy towards the gospel. This is easy to do. We think of the gospel as the ticket that gets us on the train and then we're fine. But the reality is the gospel is what we should be living every single day. Yes, it is entrance into God's covenant kingdom, but it's also the truth that motivates us and draws us into God's presence. And the truth is that we are secure in our position and we cannot earn or deserve it. We have it. But we also are called to obedience. We're called to obedience. Why? Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, because Christ is better. We're called to obedience because Christ is greater. Because Christ is God. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, the author tells us we must pay close attention to the gospel. He'll reword this in chapter 12 as he gives another warning by saying, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, so that we don't drift. Then he goes on in verses 2 and 3 to begin underscoring the gravity of why we have to do this. Verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Let's stop there. Basically, this author, remember writing to Jewish Christians, is referencing back to the law, what they've lived under for so long, the law of Moses. It was given by angels. We see that in Deuteronomy 33 and in the Psalms. And it was true. And it was filled with the truth that sin has to be paid for. So the author starts, this message was reliable. The message given by angels was reliable. And that every sin, every transgression or disobedience had to be paid for, received just retribution. What he's saying is that what was in the Old Testament, what they grew up knowing was true and pointed them to Christ. Because Christ is true because Sinai was God's word given by angels. It's reliable. And so we must not reject it. Now what he's doing here is a Jewish technique of arguing from the lesser to the greater. So he's saying that the lesser is that what the angels said, their message, the gospel of, uh, or the, the covenant of law that Moses gave, was true. Sins had to be paid for. And what he's going to do in verse 3 is he's going to say, if this, and knowing that Jesus is greater than angels, then how much more glorious is the gospel. Christ is our mediator. He is greater than not only the angels, but Moses. And if under Moses, the law brought consequences, that's what verse 2 says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, if the law was true, and it brought consequences, which it did, how much more weight 
does the gospel of Jesus have? Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is greater than the angels. And if the angels' message, the law given by Moses, was true and said sin had to be dealt with, how much greater is the gospel that Jesus proclaims? There are consequences for rejecting the message of the angels. There are greater consequences for rejecting Jesus. There are greater consequences for rejecting Jesus because there's no more sacrifices. Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. There's no more sacrifices for sin. Jesus is it. So if you let go of Jesus, if you refuse Jesus, there's no other option. There's no other way to get your sins taken care of. This is why the gospel is so important and why it matters so much. There's no way but Jesus. He's better than all the previous ways, which involved making sure you sacrificed and all these things. Now, Jesus says, I've died for you. I've paid for you. You have faith in me, and it's done. But if you reject Jesus, if you reject his gospel, there's nothing else that can deal with your sin. Because Jesus has replaced those sacrifices. He has fulfilled those sacrifices. This is why the gospel is so important. Look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. He's saying the message of the angels is the law. Sin had to be dealt with in the law. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus has brought the gospel. It is greater than all the sacrifices. So if you reject Jesus, there's nothing else there. That word neglect that we see in verse 3 means if you don't care about the gospel, if you're not concerned about the gospel, if you disregard the gospel, if you reject or neglect the gospel, there's nothing else to save you. Your works can't do it. No sacrifices can do it. Nothing can do it. Only Jesus can save you. So if you neglect Jesus, where are you left? David McWilliams, in his commentary, gives three reasons why the neglect of our salvation is so bad. Number one, this is coming from the text, there's no life, or there's life in no one except Jesus. No one else can save us from our sins. Number two, when we neglect Jesus, we are destined for eternal punishment. We don't like to talk about this in our society. We do not like to talk about hell. It is very uncomfortable because we not only don't want to think about the implications of us having eternal punishment, but we don't want to think about the implications of the people that we know and love who don't know Jesus and the fact that they may have eternal punishment. But it is true. And number three, one of the reasons why neglecting salvation is so bad is because the gospel encourages believers, but it's a threat to those who don't believe. If you don't trust in Jesus, you will have to not only give an account for all your sin, but you'll have to explain why you rejected Christ, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way, a truth, and a life which is what the culture tells us today. Yes, he's one of many. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So we cannot neglect our salvation. We must 
hold fast to the truths. And this is just the first place where the writer of Hebrews is going to warn the Hebrews. So when someone doesn't heed this warning, when someone doesn't listen to Scripture, what does that mean? It means they are not belonging to him. What does this mean for people who have been in the church for years and then turn away? What does this mean for the man or woman who has faithfully attended church for decades and refuses to turn away from their sin? 1 John 2.19 tells us they were never a true believer. 1 John 2.19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they all are not of us. There is no falling away based on our works. When someone leaves the faith, Scripture says, John says, they were never really of the faith. They pretended for a while, but now they are gone. If we trust in Jesus, we are secure. But if we leave the faith, and truly leave the faith, stay away from it, all the way until our dying day, then we were never believers to begin with. That's what John is saying. Now, this is a really hard truth, and I just want to take a second to think about this, because we don't want to think about this being true. We don't want to think about our grandmothers or our neighbors or our good friends who grew up in church, and now they're not going, and they don't believe that stuff anymore, that they might go to hell, or that they were never a believer. But the fact is, the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, is telling his audience, don't give up on the gospel, because the gospel is the only truth that will save you. And when you give up on the gospel, it is as though you are saying, not that I don't believe it anymore, I once did, but you are telling everyone around you, I never believed it. And that's what John is saying in 1 John. David McWilliams says this, those who are truly saved from sin must by virtue of the Father's electing decree, the blood of Christ who bought them, and the Holy Spirit's effectual application of Christ's atonement, infallibly persevere to the end. But the way to heaven is not easy. And the Lord uses instruction, encouragement, discipline, and even warning to bring us home. A lot of people don't like to talk about this truth. That God chooses us, or to use the language he uses in Scripture, predestines us as his sons and daughters. And that he sustains us. That we persevere from the, to the end. That when the Holy Spirit calls us and makes us his own, we will not fall away. And if somebody we know falls away, that means the Holy Spirit never called them to begin with. This is really, really, really hard. Because we all know somebody like that. We all know somebody who has turned away or who has said, well, organized religion is not for me. It'll just be me and Jesus or whatever. Fill in the blank. And the truth is, 
if they don't trust in the gospel all the way until they die, they were never believers. But another truth is that we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know whether or not this is a time or a period when they turn away and they will come back. And so we are called to continue to love them and to pray for them, even if they're under discipline. What church discipline does is it, it says, hey, you're not a believer anymore. That's what excommunication is. But that doesn't mean that we can't talk to you. That means that now we treat you like a non-believer. And so we pray for you and we encourage you and we try to bring you back because we never know what's going to happen. The first church I served at, one of the men that I discipled left the faith and just fully invested in sin. And we tried and we cried and we prayed I spent hours with his family on our knees weeping for him and his sin. We never knew whether or not he would come back, but we trusted that the Lord's plan was sovereign. And about a year after I moved to the second church that I served in, he did come back. Through the prayers of his parents, his family, through the work of the Holy Spirit, he realized how empty that sin was and came back to faith. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that it is easy for us to drift. And so we must pay close attention to what we have heard. Because the message of Christ and his gospel is greater than the message of the angels. And if there's judgment in the message of the angels, how much more so in the message of Christ? But he also is telling us that the Christian life is not going to be an easy life. That's the hard part of God's sovereignty. We don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand or don't know whether or not somebody who you know, walks away from Jesus will ever come back. We're just called to pray for them and to love them. We don't know or understand why we have to suffer through pain and sorrow. Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh and how he asked God to remove it, but God never did. But we do know this. As God's sons and daughters, he will sustain us, and we will have eternity with him. As his sons and daughters, we are promised that one day we will walk with him in the new heavens and the new earth, rejoicing in who he is, praising his name, glorifying him forever and ever. But we're also promised that until that day, it will not be easy. Missionaries face this all the time. They go to different cultures, and there's different kinds of persecution or suffering. I was hearing a report from a missionary yesterday, and she was talking about how women are often just neglected where she was at. Nobody thinks about their well-being. Nobody cares about them. And so when she went to do a class, she was teaching on how to teach, helping school teachers understand how to teach better so that these Christian schools could help serve the community and bring the gospel to bear. She told these women about how she had also suffered. And they were shocked, and they were thankful. They thought, they told her, we did not think white women suffered like we suffer. So to hear that you suffer brings us hope because you're also bringing us the gospel. In Scripture, we see examples of this all the time. In Acts 23, we see that Paul knows from God that he is going to make it from Jerusalem to Rome. 
He knows. God says, you will minister in Rome. But that's not a first-class plane ticket from Jerusalem to Rome. On the way, he shipwrecks. On the way, he suffers. On the way, others suffer with him. On the way, he's jailed. But he does make it to Rome. There will be times in our lives when we won't understand what the Lord is doing, but we are called to continue to look back to the gospel because Jesus is better and that gospel is true. You think about the hymn, Amazing Grace, and one of its lines is, Many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Twas grace that brought me thus this far, and grace will bring me home. What a beautiful promise that we get in that song. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this in chapter 17, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor fully fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. When we pay attention to the gospel, when we trust in the gospel, when we pursue the gospel, we will be saved because Christ did it for us. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. So in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, this author is telling us to give heed to the gospel, to not drift away, to pay attention to the witnesses that have already been there. That's what he's talking about in verse 4, those who have attested to us. How do we do this? John Owen, in his commentary, gives us five examples. Number one, we give heed to the gospel by constantly maintaining high thoughts of the excellence of the gospel. When we think about the gospel, we don't think about it as just this tract or just this ticket. We think about how glorious it is that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves and are without hope, without God. That is glorious. That God sent Jesus to do what we couldn't do, to die and pay the punishment that we couldn't pay. And we need to keep that in front of us. So number one, we give heed to the gospel by constantly maintaining high thoughts of the excellence of the gospel. Number two, John Owen says we give heed to the gospel by making diligent study of the gospel. He says the gospel is like digging up a treasure. And if we believe that, if we believe that the gospel is like digging up a treasure, we set, side, we set aside time from the things of the world to send, spend time in the Word so that we can dig the treasure up and deeper understand who Jesus is and who this, or what this gospel is. John Owen says, The studying of the Word is the security of our faith. So we give heed to the gospel by making diligent study of it. He goes on in number three to say, to truly heed the gospel, we must mix the word with faith. We must not ignore scripture. We must pay attention, not just to the truths and the glories of the gospel, but to the commands that God has given us. When we don't pay attention to what God has commanded us, it's like being hungry and ignoring food. We must not ignore the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Otherwise, 
We are ignoring the very thing that sustains us. John Owen says, number four, heeding the gospel means conforming our hearts and lives to the gospel. When we read the Bible, it should enliven and excite and motivate our hearts because it is shaping our heart so that this word of God is abundant in our souls and lives. There is nothing more true than the gospel. And so heeding the gospel means conforming our hearts and lives to the gospel. And finally, number five, Owen says that we are to give heed to the gospel by becoming watchful against all that oppose the truthfulness of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, there are many, 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 many false doctrines. And there are many, 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 many people that are against the gospel. And so we have to be careful all the time to watch for everything that's against the gospel and to avoid it. When we find something that is saying the Bible is bad and God is bad, we don't keep listening to it. We avoid it. We should beware of what we are listening and watching and reading and make sure that it is always pointing us to the gospel. Owen goes on in his commentary to warn us that these temptations can come in a variety of means. They can come when things are going well, when there's peace and prosperity, because then we settle that we've done enough. Or these temptations can come in persecution because we feel like, hey, I'm suffering for you. How come you're not living up to your part of the bargain? Well, they can even come in the midst of temptation. Lord, this looks so much better, and you haven't provided me what's good, so I'm going to pursue this. And we have to be careful, as the author says, to pay close attention to the gospel, lest we drift. Drift can happen in the church, and drift can happen in our own lives. We already read in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, that Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to another gospel. John, in the book of Revelation, spends chapters 2 and 3 to, <coughs> excuse me, writing letters to seven churches. And most of those churches, he's saying, look, here's where you're doing good, but you are also drifting from the truth. He tells it particularly the Ephesian church, which is the first church he writes a letter to. You've done a good job of knowing the truth, but you've forgotten your love. You've forgotten your love of Christ. We see this in history. In the city of Geneva, they had phenomenal, phenomenal men of God. Calvin, Beza, and Turretin all added great things to that church. And yet after they passed on, eventually that church turned away from the Lord. Drift can happen in the church, and the leaders should be constantly fighting to make sure that it doesn't. But drift can also happen in our lives. We can stray from knowing and loving the truth. This usually starts small. It usually starts by doing little things like skipping church or not really valuing worship, just going because you feel like you have to. It can start by pulling out of volunteering or missing your own regular time in the Word or becoming critical of the church and of the Lord or maybe even moral failure. Drift can happen personally as well. But doing the opposite of those things doesn't earn or deserve you salvation. It's just that those are warning signs that you may be drifting. 
Remember, brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews begins chapter 2 with therefore. Because of Christ's glory. Because of who Jesus is. Because we have the promise of eternity. Don't drift away. Don't drift away personally. Don't drift away as a church. Don't run from God, but run to God. And so as we close and we think about how we apply a text like this to our lives, we have to ask ourselves, where did the Spirit convict me today? Where did I feel that little twinge today? How can I pay close attention to the Gospel and to the Scripture so that we don't drift away? Let me pray for us. Father, drift is so easy today. Satan makes drift so easy to do, to to turn from the beauty of the gospel. We intellectually know what Christ has done. We know how he is above the prophets. We know how he is above the angels. We know how he is your son. And yet... Even today, we see churches all around us that are denying Jesus, denying Jesus' righteousness, denying his salvation for us. We see churches that have lost sight of the gospel, that have not listened to the writer of Hebrews. And not just churches, Father, but individuals as well. People who are drifting away from loving you and pursuing you. Father, we know that none of us are perfect. And so we pray that you would help us. Help us not to drift. Help us to take heed of the warning of the author of Hebrews. Help us to pay attention to where the Spirit convicted us today. Help us to love your Scripture more and more each and every day. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.